Okay, so it's late afternoon uh, at a bar in Boston somewhere. Two guys sitting at opposite end of the bar. No one else in there, just these two guys at opposite ends. And uh, one of them turns to the bartender and says, uh, ah, could you give me another pint of Guinness? The guy at the far end of the bar hears him and says, are you from Ireland? Yeah, I'm from Ireland. Are you? He says, yeah, I'm from Ireland. What county are you from? Ah, well, I'm from County Cork. You're not from County Cork. I'm from County Cork. They say, well, that's amazing. What, what, uh, what street do you live on? I lived on Hill Street. Yeah, I didn't live on Hill Street. I used to live on Hill Street in County Cork. They're just amazed at this. And says, well, what was your address? I lived at 121 Hill Street. Yeah, I didn't. I lived at 121 Hill Street. Phone rings behind the bar. Bartender picks it up. His wife on the phone saying, honey, how's it going this afternoon? He goes, Everything's fine. It's kind of slow. Clancy twins are drunk again. <laughs> I guess that's a joke about forgetfulness. Uh, maybe about forgetting what is uh, maybe most essential to who we are. In this case, their family, being a part of the same family. But of course, we forget certain things about being a part of this family. Uh, that are most central. And so we're going to look at the gospel passage today, and we're particularly going to look at confession of sin, because again, confession of sin is something we do here every Sunday as part of our liturgy. And in fact, because we're following morning prayer, this is something that apparently is done, for those who have a kind of a liturgical background, done every day in morning prayer. Well, that's a lot. <laughs> so what is the deal with confession of sin? I mean, why is this an important um, thing to return to? You may remember last week that um, Todd preached on uh, the importance of the church being a place of grace and forgiveness. And remember, he preached from Luke 15, where Jesus was accused of hanging out with sinners, of bringing the message of grace and forgiveness to sinners. And his question last week for us was, what would we have to do to be accused of hanging out too much with sinners? Uh, if you know David Kinneman's book called Unchristian, uh, Kinneman wrote a book kind of looking at attitudes toward Christianity among non-believers, but many of whom had attended churches at some point. And the number one thing that they associate with Christians, any guesses? That's it. Yeah, the number one thing they associate is judgmentalism. Now, again, uh, non-believers may have a, have a skewed view of that because of the media, or non-church attenders, I should say, should have a skew, may, have, may have a skewed view of that because of the media, or there may be some sense of guilt and conviction they're feeling from the Holy Spirit. But there's probably also some truth to that. That perhaps the church hasn't done a great job in communicating the essential gospel of grace and forgiveness. And so the question becomes, how do we become a people who exude grace and forgiveness? Um, and what does confession have to do with that? And I want to offer to you that that is, in fact, the case. That the practice of continual confession actually makes us a people of grace and forgiveness. And how would that work? Well, I'd like you to open your, uh, your, your uh, program to, to that gospel passage I just read, to Luke 7. And you know, one thing about reading the gospels is there's always more going on in a scene than we actually know. I mean, we're kind of um, separated culturally and historically from that period, and there's a lot of nuance and sometimes tension in a scene that we may not pick up on. And I, I'll tell you right now, this dinner scene, and that's what essentially it is, Jesus has been invited over for dinner, is filled with tension. Now, um, as I was uh, working on this, I was thinking of um, all those movies 
that, uh, that genre of movies that have to do with awkward family scenes. Can you think of some? There's like a whole genre of movies that have to do with awkward family scenes. There's, you know, Guess Who's Coming to Dinner uh, years ago with Spencer Tracy and uh, Cindy Poitier. There's Meet the Parents. I think that has some awkward dinner scenes in it, if I recall. There's a movie called The Family Stone that has really awkward scenes in it. Uh, there's a movie I saw called Rachel Getting Married that has a really awkward, uh, re- um, what do you do the night before you married? Rehearsal dinner scene, yeah. And some are funny, some are awkward. Well, this scene here in Luke 7 is a very awkward moment. And so let's take a look at actually what's happening here. Uh, so let's just start reading again in Luke 7. So now one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him. So he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. Now let's just stop there. What's going on here? Well, why would Jesus be invited to come over to the Pharisee's house? Well, probably here's the reason. Jesus has been coming into town, and he is a rabbi. He's recognized as a rabbi, and it would be standard practice to invite the rabbi into the local uh, clergyman's or Pharisee's home. But he's got uh, two problems, or the Pharisees have two problems with Jesus. One is that um, he's been preaching himself as a prophet, or been recognized as a prophet. And he's kind of young to be a prophet by their standards. I mean, 30 is a bit young. And, of course, we all know that prophets aren't really recognized in in their own hometowns in some cases. So they've got a little problem here. So the Pharisees probably asked Jesus over to kind of set him straight on this, to really check him out, because he's gaining some popularity among the masses. The second reason he's being invited over and being checked out is because he's proclaiming grace for sinners. And this would not be something that would be welcome either. So not only is he a little too young to be a prophet, he's 30, right? But he's, he's actually preaching grace and divine reward or forgiveness to the unrighteous or who would be considered the unrighteous rather than the law keepers. And this is a source of concern to the law keepers. I think I may have been up here before and I talk about law keepers and law breakers before when I was up here. Um, did I do that? Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm a law keeper. Uh, we're, we're the kind of people who like to... Uh, be rewarded for our goodness, and uh, we kind of get, like the elder prodigal son, we kind of get irritated when we see our uh, other prodigals getting rewarded, or getting at least um, forgiven. So in this case, the Pharisee has two agendas. One to correct Jesus about his uh, status as a prophet, the other to correct him about who actually receives the grace of God. So let's move on to 36b here. Or just the last part of it. So he went to the Pharisee's house and he reclined at the table. Well, again, just the second half of the verse, but what's going on here? Whether you know it or not, there would have been a few customary uh, rituals when someone came into your home. And we have them too, right? If we invite somebody over for dinner, they walk in, what do we do? First thing we say is we maybe give them a kiss of greeting or a hug at the door. That's customary in our culture. We would... um, take their coat, offer them something to drink, uh, maybe direct them to a place to sit down. Uh, We don't have a lot of that, but we have some of that. I mean, it'd be very different if we just shouted, hey, come in, and just kind of weren't there when they came in or something. So we we feel a certain propriety to kind of go through some hospitality um, routines. Well, that would have been true in, certainly more true in the ancient Near East. If, If a visiting rabbi would come in, you would have greeted them at the door with a kiss. 
And then because of uh, the fact they didn't have paved roads and it was dusty, he would have brought some olive oil to him at the threshold. And olive oil was essentially a Middle Eastern soap and some water. And he would have washed his feet because of the dirt and the dust from traveling. That would have been kind of the second routine. Probably wash his feet and hands, his hands as well. And then you would be invite him, maybe after a prayer, invite him to recline on the couch. Um, in fact, this, it would look like this. Um, if you guys have the slide up here, uh, the triclinium, it's called a triclinium, which is kind of a U-shaped couch. And we know, though, from later on in the story that none of these things actually happened. That Jesus was not given a kiss. His hands and feet were not washed. And it appears he was not invited to the couch after prayer. Because usually what would happen is there would be a kind of a seating of the three. Do you have that picture of the, um, I don't know if he has a picture of the triclinium up there. If you could take a look at this. Yeah, that's what it would look like, kind of that U-shaped set of, uh, of uh, cushions. And then you can see in the lower picture, if you can, how they would sit with their kind of um, head forward and feet on the outside. Normally what would be done is that the eldest and most senior of the Pharisees or the religious men would be seated first, and then there would be an order after that. Well, apparently this was not done either. So Jesus just goes in and sits down first. And as such, he kind of establishes his authority as one who is a prophet and who does deserve perhaps to be seated first. So there's quite a bit of tension here. And there would have been, unlike our houses where we have doors and windows, there would have been a lot of people who had come to see this event because Jesus was kind of a celebrity. And, uh, he, and he's a visitor. And so there would be people, since there were no window panes in these houses, leaning in through the places that were cut out for windows. They would be leaning in there, and they'd be at the door. So there would have been a kind of a throng around the house who would be observing this, this dinner, and this person, Jesus. And all of them would have sensed what I just described to you, that there is instantly a lot of tension here. Jesus was not welcomed as a rabbi is normally welcomed. And he has gone on himself to proclaim a little bit of his authority by seating himself alone, uninvited, at the reclinium. So now what does Luke do? Now Luke moves the camera, so to speak, to a woman. And so we're told in the next sentence, When a woman who had lived a sinful life in that town learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster jar of perfume. Well, of course, we know that the title, a sinner, in her case, is a euphemism for a prostitute. So this is a woman who would have been part of that surrounding throng, part of that group that was just looking in to see Jesus, curious about him. But here's what probably happened in her life that day. She'd probably heard Jesus' message and forgiveness as he was preaching it out in public. She'd heard that there was forgiveness offered to her because under normal Jewish law, you would have to compensate for your sin you stole, you have it, it would have to kind of return the item or work the payment back to that person. And to be accepted back into the community, you would have to then have a history of obedience before you would be accepted into that community. Well, how do you compensate for prostitution? And of course, then there would be the time for her to kind of become good enough 
to be established by the community. But what does she hear that day from Jesus? He hears that where you are right now, if you repent and believe, there is forgiveness for you now. Well, she had never heard this. This was incredible. You mean I can be accepted in spite of what I've done? I can be accepted now, today, by this rabbi? So she has come that night with a jar of perfume. She has been so moved and so overcome by the, what we call the gospel that she has come to present him with a gift. To anoint him with this perfume. But here's what happens. I suppose, and this is a little bit of speculation here, I suppose that the moment she would have done that is when he would have been stopped at the threshold um, where she couldn't, she couldn't pass beyond the threshold, but she wouldn't stop there. That would have been her moment to anoint him because she couldn't go in the house. And she was assuming that he would be stopped, his feet would be washed, he'd be given a kiss of greeting, there would be a moment there, but it doesn't happen. Jesus just has to walk right in because there's no, no one there to greet him in that way. And what apparently she feels in her heart, according to this passage, is great grief that this person who has offered her God's grace and forgiveness has been snubbed by the establishment. And so now she doesn't know what to do. She's brought this perfume. She's standing there. She wants to show her gratitude. But then it occurs to her. Well, of course, she's, she's weeping. We know that too. She's crying. Then it occurs to her, well, they didn't wash him, but I have water, my tears, and they didn't bring a towel to dry his feet afterwards, so I have my hair, and they didn't bring any soap in the form of olive oil, but this perfume could function that way. And so suddenly she hits upon a plan B. And so she moves in boldly to the area of the triclinium where he is already seated. Now, it would have been very, very awkward. I mean, it's already tense for her to now walk in. It would have been very awkward for her to climb up because, the, because of the table, she would have had to have climbed up onto kind of the sofas to, get his, to, uh, to anoint his head or anything like that, which, was, which I guess was her previous plan. And so she goes around to his feet, and we're told she does this. And she stood behind him at his feet, weeping, and she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair and kissed them and poured perfume on them. So she does for Jesus what the host, Simon the Pharisee, did not do for him. Now this would have been incredibly provocative, right? Uh, not least because of her use of her hair. In the ancient Near East, as it is in, in many places in the Middle East now, um, to undo your hair in public would have been a sign of seduction. Hair is con was considered a pretty seductive um, part of the body on a woman. In fact, if you were uh, abiding by um, Mosaic law, or, 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 or Jewish law, I should say, um, undoing your hair in public would actually have been grounds for a divorce for which you would not receive a settlement. You could be divorced for undoing your hair in public. Indeed, the undoing of the hair would have been simply something that is done for the first time on your wedding night. 
for your husband. It was meant to be done in the intimacy of that marriage relationship. And so this would have been pretty sexually provocative for her to come and not only to enter there and not only to minister in this way, but to use her hair. But I don't think she's sending any signals here of sexual promiscuity. That seems she seems to be in an entirely different place from where she may have been that morning. Indeed, she may be doing exactly this, is pledging her loyalty to Jesus, now as her Lord. Wow, so if it wasn't tense to start with in this room, <laughs> with the snubbing of Jesus, now it is really tense. This is the awkward dinner scene par excellence. Really tense. Simon the Pharisee watching all this taking place. Already suspicious of Jesus. Now he's really suspicious because both Simon and Jesus know that Jesus should be embarrassed by this. Jesus should be recoiling from this. He should be sending her to the temple to be cleansed and begin the process of her working her way back into the community if she's really serious about this. He should be doing what a good Pharisee would do, which would be to be distancing himself from her and send her to the temple priests. It doesn't take a special act of clairvoyance on Jesus' part to know that that's what Simon's thinking here. That Jesus is really not acting like a prophet now. And so, Jesus knowing this says in the next sentence, Simon, I have something to say to you. Now this is an ancient Near Eastern idiom for simply bluntness. I mean, our kids know this, right? We have this tone of voice. Abby, my daughter, Come here, I need to talk to you. <laughs> they instantly know that this is going to be a correction. Well, this is what, this is the fourth force of Jesus is saying. And he knows that Simon doesn't get it. He knows that Jesus knows that he's come preaching a gospel of forgiveness for sinners, and he knows that even though Jesus has allowed this, Simon is still not getting it. That this gospel, this good news, can come to sinners. And so he says, I'm going to tell a parable. Interesting way for, again, for Jesus to respond. You need a story right now. He said, two men owed money to a certain money lender, and one owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Now, right away, probably in Simon's mind, he's beginning to see this allegorically. He says, well, I know who the 500 person is <laughs> who owes this money. Clearly this woman. This woman is in huge debt by her lifestyle to God. She owes this impossible amount of 500 denarii by the sins that she has committed. But there's another person in this parable. And this is the person who owes the money lender 50. And it was commonly understood that the money lender was a figure for God. And those who owed were figures for sinners. But who is this other person who owes 50? Well, of course, the word sin here covers two kinds of sin. The sin of commission, which, of course, is what she has done. She has committed sins. But sins also cover the sins of omission, kind of like we prayed in our, in our forgiveness prayer, things we have failed to do. Well, if anybody's thinking there, they're thinking, well, who is someone in this room who has failed to do something they ought to have done? Well, it must be Simon, <laughs> who's failed to recognize the goodness of Christ's gospel and indeed the lordship of Christ himself. Well, the parable shows, even though one person may obviously be a sinner, and the other person may have fallen short by omission, nevertheless, neither of them, were told, can pay. They're both in the same boat. One owns 500, one owes 50. But the money lender forgives them both. And while that is part of Jesus' point, is that Simon, 
you have sinned as well. And like the woman, you can neither pay. But he says, here's what I want to focus on. I don't even want to focus on the sin. I want to focus on the response to grace. And so he asked the question, now which of them, Simon, looking at him now, which of these two people, the 500 denarii or the 50 denarii debtor, which of these two do you think loves the money lender more? This is an easy riddle. Not all of Jesus' parables are easy. This one's a snap. And Simon gets it. I suppose the one who has the bigger debt canceled. You've judged correctly, Jesus said. <laughs> well done. And then he turned toward the woman and said, Do you see this woman? And this is where we learn all the background that I said earlier. I came into your house. You did not give me water for my feet. She wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, for she loved much. But he who has been forgiven little, loves little. So Jesus kind of moves through these sins of the Pharisee, and it stings a little bit. It stings a little bit. He's moving through, and if, in case Simon didn't get it, Simon, you are the one who owes 50 and who still can't pay it. She did for me all these things that you did not do. So interestingly, there's been a reversal. Jesus entered the home as the one whom the religious authorities believed was the rule breaker. <laughs> the person too young to be a prophet, the person preaching forgiveness to sinners. Jesus entered the rule breaker, and now Jesus cleverly and poignantly has turned the tables. No, Simon, you are the rule breaker. But you don't even want to focus on that. I want you to know that he who is forgiven much loves much. He wants to focus on grace and how love grows. Now, the woman isn't forgiven because of her actions. In fact, again, she probably already received forgiveness that day. She came as one who has been forgiven. And Jesus just confirms it. Your sins are forgiven. They are forgiven. And so he reverses her humiliation. Has been someone who has been, has been uh, uh, set outside the community, he welcomes her in. It's a pretty powerful scene, pretty dramatic, pretty awkward. But what does it tell us about how we become a people of grace and love? How do we become a people who, who move toward sinners with grace and forgiveness, who move toward those who maybe don't move toward Jesus naturally? How do we move toward them as Jesus? Well, certainly this story talks about one woman's conversion. And of course, you and I, if we had a kind of a particular conversion experience or maybe a renewal of our faith, um, we would have come to Jesus exactly this way. We would have come saying, Lord, I need you. I realize, I, I realize that living apart from you is hopeless. I realize that I need your grace. And so many of us come to Jesus Christ exactly the way this woman has. The problem is, in our Christian life, you and I, we tend to slip back. Having come to Christ knowing that we have nothing to offer and are in need of grace, we tend to spend the rest of our Christian lives trying to cover that up. Having come that way, there is the temptation as Christians to kind of begin like Simon, to kind of 
feel like, you know, it's because of my goodness that, the God, that God favors me. Now that I've become kind of an expert Christian, it's because of, because of my, my law-keeping that the Lord favors me. Well, we may not be the 500 denary sinner anymore, but we're probably still the 50 denary sinner still. And so there's a continual call in our lives to come back and to revisit that moment, to re-realize the gospel, lest we fall back into a place where we begin to define ourselves as people who are a little better than others. See, this is what can lead to the judgmentalism. Because my identity begins to be built on my rule-keeping. It's just kind of a slide we just develop. And so what does the prayer of confession do? Well, the prayer prayer of confession does a couple things. One is it helps us live in the reality of ourselves. Christians should live in in reality. (laughs) Christians should be the people who live most in the real, in the authentic. And so the confession of sin just kind of realizes that we are in process. That you and I, as we confess our sins on a daily basis, we just kind of realize, wow, Lord, I, I still need you. Not just on the day of conversion, I still need you. And I still need the cross every day. And so we are people who live in the truth of ourselves. That's one thing that confession does for us. But you know, the other thing, and I think it's the thing that Jesus focused on here, is it produces love. Because he or she who is forgiven much loves much. You know that, that verse, 1 John 1, 9? If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins. That always confused me, that verse. It sounded like if we confessed our sins, like if I happened to think of all the sins, then he would forgive them. Like what if I forget some sins? <laughs> Does he not forgive those? No, no, that's not exactly how it works. The idea here is if we confess them, whatever we confess, even things we can't remember, but if we confess our sins, his faithfulness of forgiveness of sins is always there. It's always there. Now, of course, that's true. It's true what in philosophers call an ontological sense. Ontologically, his, sin, his forgiveness of sin is always there for you, whether you remember every sin or don't. It's always there. Your past, present, and future sins are covered whether you remember to confess them or not, whether you even know about them. <laughs> it's always there if you've accepted Christ. But there's also something called the existential forgiveness of sins, which means that what I get to do in the confession of sin, what I get to do is I get to come every day, live in the truth of myself, talk to God about my sins of thought, word, deed, and things left undone. And you know what I get to do? I get to re-experience forgiveness. I get to re-experience the cross that day. I'm not getting forgiven again as if the, his act of forgiveness or crucifixion is happening over and over again. I just get to access it every day. I get to experience it. Because he is faithful when we confess our sins, as always, to forgive us. And we get to experience that. Remember Todd Hunter is fond of, of quoting Malcolm Gladwell and talking about uh, the book Outliers, where, they, uh, where Gladwell researched that people who become great at something, usually they discovered, uh, have practiced that thing for 10,000 hours. So a great hockey player has probably spent 10,000 hours playing hockey. Well, I don't know if we ever become professionals in dying to self and confession of sin and love. But you know, the liturgy is in a sense designed to help us grow in that. 
Because as we do it day after day, this is not kind of a shameful self-loathing. This is not a thing where we say, I just got to do better. Confession is not a thing where we say, I just got to get this behind me, name it and claim it, get out of there. It's not a thing where I'm trying to get rid of guilt. I think confession is sometimes practiced that way. I just got to confess this and get it away. And Jesus is not so fast, not so fast. You get to kind of be in the truth of yourself for a moment, stay there for a minute like we did when we opened. See the truth of yourself and fly to the cross. You get to go to the cross every day. And he says, you know what will happen? You will grow in love. Because he who is forgiven much, who experiences forgiveness every day, who experiences the gospel every day, is going to be excited about that gospel. You know, I sometimes worry in my life that the good news is just pretty good news. (laughs) That maybe I don't share the good news enough because it's just pretty good news. But as I've been practicing the confession, the prayer of confession on a daily basis, I found, no, this is great news. This is great news. And it wants me to, it gets me to a place where I actually want to share this with others. And to move toward them, not in a spirit of judgmentalism, but in humility, living in the truth of myself. But loving the Lord more dearly, who has done this for us. So, uh, you have this guide today, and this could be something for you for daily prayer. As we daily kind of bring our sins to the Lord, not as a way of somehow ridding ourselves of guilt, but of actually entering into forgiveness and and, uh, receiving love um, that we might give it to others. So, the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you for listening. For more information about Holy Trinity Church, please visit us online at www.myholytrinitychurch.com.